0: 675 million, that's the number of books sold in the United States in 2020.
1: 835,000, that's how many copies of President Obama's 2020 memoir, A Promised Land, sold in the first week when it was released.
0: 3.2 million, that's how many more books were sold this year than last in the areas of history and political science.
1: 629,000, That's how many more books were sold this year in the category Civil Rights.
0: This week on System Check, we are saying farewell to 2020 and hello to 2021 with our first System Check book club.
1: So happy to be in 2021. (laughs) Now, we first aired this book club as a live event on YouTube and Facebook, just in time for holiday reading. The original show was two hours long. So for our podcast this week, we decided to share with you some of the highlights from the live event. That's
0: right, Melissa. And during this episode, we talk with Maria Hinojosa, author of Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America. And Ruman Alam, author of Leave the World Behind.
1: We'll also hear from Scott Ferris, author of Freedom on Trial, the first post-Civil War battle over civil rights and voter suppression. And from John Nichols, our colleague at The Nation and also author of Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party.
0: And we finish up with Shauna Redmond, author of Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson. So sit back, relax, and start your year with great conversations about books. I'm Dorian Warren.
1: And I'm Melissa Harris-Perry.
0: And this is System Check.
1: please welcome our first guest, Maria Inosá. Maria Inosá is a groundbreaking journalist, storyteller, and founder of Futuro Media Group. She is anchor and executive producer of the brilliant and informative weekly NPR show, Latino USA, and anchor of the Emmy award-winning talk show, Maria Inaosa One on One. Inosá has won multiple Emmys, a Murrow Award, and a Peabody. Her latest book, Once I Was You, A Memoir of Love and Hate in a Torn America, was published by Atria Books and received well-earned rave reviews this fall. Maria Inaosa, thank you for joining the System Check Book Club.
2: Thank you for having me. It's so good to be with you. Congratulations for all of the beautiful, the work that the both of you are doing. I'm just so honored to be here with you talking books, talking books. And and this is just about talking about your book, but all the things that your book is
1: doing. So just start with the title Mm -hmm. because the title, I mean,
2: so what does it mean when you say once I was you? So, I don't know about other authors maybe they start a book with a title but I didn't have a title and we didn't have a title for a long it was getting a little bit crazy I was getting really scared and nervous and both my editor and my agent were like no 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 don't worry it will happen and I was like Aah! and we had somebody else come in and just read just start reading the book and that editor was the one who said what about once I was you and I was like oh my god hmm. Here's the thing. Uh, I wrote the whole book and then my editor, Michelle Herrera Mulligan, fabulous, fabulous Mexican Irish from Chicago. Um, Yes. She, after I wrote the book, she said, okay, go back and write the introduction. And I was like, you're, Mm. you're kidding me, right? Like Mm. you're, 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 you're killing me here because you write a book and you have a sense of the book. And then I had to write this introductory chapter. And Sandra Cisneros, also from Chicago, a mm-hmm. uh, great Mexican American writer, uh, said to me, she's one of my muses and friends. And she said, you know, don't always write about what you remember, write about what you wish you could forget mm. or what you've already tried to forget. Mm. And when I sat with that, that was the scene that yeah. I decided, which was a scene from an airport in McAllen, Texas where I come upon, I witness, like maybe the both of you or people who are watching may have, if you sit back and you think, oh, I saw this really weird thing at the airport one time, a group of kids that should have looked like they were a soccer team, but they didn't look like they were a soccer team, and they didn't look happy, and they all looked mismatched, and none of them were talking. Well, I came upon that and I've been, you know, I'm a journalist. I've been covering this story my whole life. So I realized what it was. And that is what becomes the opening, the introduction. And in the end, I'm, I'm describing how I'm having to speak loudly so that they can hear me because they they prohibited me, the, the so-called chaperones, which actually are their traffickers. Mm. Um, they prohibited me from speaking with the children. And so I was just saying out loud, you know, you children deserve the right to speak to journalists. They deserve the right to know that they are loved and cared for and that we want them here. And I said, I wanted you to hear me. I'm talking to this little girl who I had started a conversation with. I said, I wanted you to hear me uh, because I wanted you to know that I saw you. I see you because once I was you. And that's the thing that I didn't really understand what's going to happen in the process of writing this book. And without revealing too much, it turns out that, yeah, with all of my privilege, because we talk about my privilege or Mm -hmm. our privilege, right? Uh, I was almost taken from my mother when I arrived in this country. mm -hmm. And,
1: And that moment just as a parent, I'm sure you felt it Dorian, like my heart fell into my feet. That idea of a um, border agent looking at your mother and saying the rest of you can go in, but we've got to keep the baby. And, and I, think, I think part of what I wanna sort of to, to draw from, the, on the one hand, the personal story, but then the big one, it was helpful to remember that family separation has been part of the system mm-hmm. um, that we have used for so much longer than just this one moment.
2: Let me tell you, that was the thing that, as we say in Mexican Spanish, me aplastó, it left me flat. Mm. Because we had known that something had happened. It was like something happened. And then it was like, even when my mom revealed, well, no, at the airport, you know, the agent almost took I, you. I remember when I first heard that. Because there had been some commotion, I was like, "Well, that's a weird agent. What a weird dude!" <laughs> right? I swear to you, look. And I'm not talking about like I was a little girl when I. I mean, I'm talking about as a seasoned adult journalist. Yeah. I was like, "Well, why would he want to do that's so mm. weird? Where was he going to put me?" Ha ha ha! Laughing it off without realizing. And this is, you know, I don't, I don't know if I have the capacity, but I have thought about doing a FOIA and trying to get the architectural plans for mm. the Dallas airport to see where was the room yeah. where they would take children and hold them because I was not the only one. It was a system that was built upon, you know, the very, well, you know, the original sin was slavery, but the first sin was genocide. So the first taken were indigenous children yeah. and then the children of enslaved black men and women. And then Japanese American citizen children. So it has been happening throughout. And
0: and Maria, there's, there's two things as I was reading that passage in particular that came to mind. One is the quote from the agent, which was basically, I'm just doing my job. And then second, though, is actually the story of your mother and resistance. Yes. Right. So how do you how do we help us make sense of the long history of those that have enabled these systems because they're just doing their job? And then the, the of course, individual acts and collective acts of resistance.
2: Well, this is the thing that also when my mother calls me, when she realized when she was hearing the voices of those babies and toddlers and children, the way we all heard them on the news when ProPublica broke that story. Um, that was when my mother, and by the time, she was now in her eighties. Mm. And this is when, as we say in Mexican Spanish, Le cayó el 20, the, the coin dropped and she was like, Oh my God. And she said that she spoke back to him in a way, using a tone of voice that she had never used before. And I think about the only other person who I've heard say that was Ana Maria Chuleta, who uh, took on uh, the senator. Remember the uh-huh. the elevator moment? Yes.
0: Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. yes. yes.
2: Ana Maria Sorry. Chuleta saying in the midst of the uh, hearings for Kavanaugh, saying, that was me. And and I remember interviewing her and she said, I had never used that tone of voice. Ana Maria from Center for
0: Popular Democracy. Center yep. for
2: Popular yep. Democracy. So that was what my mother said. She had never used that tone of voice. And so that was her privilege to understand that she could even do that. She was screaming, mm-hmm. which yeah. is what freaked the agent out. She had, you know, he had a petite five foot woman gorgeous with four children who was screaming at the top of her lungs. Now, when I think about the question about complicity in systems, this is the part that makes me sick because the so-called chaperones, as I say, traffickers of these children were Latinos and Latina. He was a Latino man and a Latina woman. And the person who was running the largest shelter program throughout all of the Southwest was Southwest Key, a Latino man who I interviewed getting paid $1.5 million. And he said, look, if I'm not doing this, a white supremacist is going to do this and he's going to, and he's going to do it horribly, which I'm like, okay, (laughs) maybe. But the problem is, is that the system, (sighs) that's right. The system is set up and I'm going to warn your, your listeners and viewers, because this is going to, it's a little triggering because if you are a sadist, a rapist, an abuser, a psychopath, a pedophile, you know exactly where to go to find work. In immigrant detention camps, they will employ you. And so those horrors that we're talking about have been going on system-wide and Latinos and Latinas and Black men and women, go, go stand and see who, well, not anymore, but you know, when I was at... Department of Homeland Security at 5 o'clock p.m., who was coming out? Black men and women.
1: So so I, I wanna there's there's one moment in the book where you do precisely this. Um it on page 261 you write, My husband says that the reason it's so hard for me is because I believed in the promise of this country. I bought into exceptionalism. It's hard to accept how ornery and normal and mediocre this country really is. I thought we were better than this, but we aren't. Now detention camps are called La Hilera the freezer for short because it's hard to show remnants of torture from freezing yeah so much of what you have done professionally has been to tell the stories that nobody else in media even bothered to be curious about right it's not just they weren't telling them they they weren't even curious about them so on a kind of perspective or forward-looking. Maria, as you look at the system of American broadcast and print media, but maybe mostly broadcast, because print's doing okay in terms of its content, what are the things we're not even curious about that we need to be asking questions about?
2: <clears throat> oh. <laughs> <laughs> um So in terms of politics, I think the thing that is uh, obsessive to me is the fact that if you look at at the numbers, and I know you know this and your viewers know this, that Latinos and Latinas were the second largest potential voting block in the United States of America. But you really did get a sense of that at all from any of the coverage. And what I mean is the media places importance on a certain community and makes uh, demands in terms of accountability. Like, what are the poli- what are the politicians doing to reach this important vote? And the politicians follow. After Obama, we know this, right? After Obama was elected, there was a kind of the collective media was like, "Oh shit, we need to <clears throat> we need to take these black people more seriously here." Like, they're okay, mm-hmm. and so then there was a demand, right? You were on television, Melissa. So many others, right? That was a moment. Mm-hmm. Um. That doesn't really happen in terms of the issue of immigration, honestly, because Mm -hmm. most of the people who run our mainstream news media are overwhelmingly white men of privilege, Mm -hmm. and they have grown up consuming the media narrative around immigrants that has been part of the mainstream narrative for decades, and that's what I write about in the book. So they, too, they're like, oh, God, cover immigrants? Oh, man, it's like a never-ending story. The story never gets better. It's such a problem. You know, you we just heard that potentially, you know, what NPR reported was that uh, Joe Biden did not put immigration as one of his top priorities. It was not there. And that NPR reported that the reason why was because there was a sense within the administration kind of like, You know, immigration activists are a little bit too uppity and they're not grateful. And so, you know, maybe not this time. And so. I'm literally sipping my tea (laughs) while you tell it. I'm just, (laughs) you're just like, do tell me more. So the question is, why wasn't that a bigger story? And the reason why is because we have to make the connection, the murder of George Floyd, which we witnessed. Well, I, didn't, I wouldn't watch, okay, mm-hmm. but out of respect. But the murder, that dehumanization, the other part of the extension of that is women's uteruses being removed from their bodies and their children being taken away. Yes. And now when we talk about systems, because it's like, so how, you know, I actually do think we have to be dreamers and say, no, you shut it all down. You can shut it all down. You can shut it all down, but the system problem, you know this, is we're talking about tens of thousands of jobs. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to say that all of the employees of the Department of Homeland Security are Black. I didn't mean to say that. What I meant to say was that we are there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, now Alejandro Mayorkas, a Cuban-American immigrant Mm -hmm. raised in Los Angeles, will be running the Department Mm -hmm. of Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean system-wide? when we say we want to do better.
0: Maria Hinojosa, um, just to say, a lot of us will be putting the president-elect's feet to the fire on immigration and will force the, the issue to be a top priority because we have to do something around immigration and the undocumented in this country and the mistreatment. And we could talk to you all night long, we have to- Please
2: invite me back.
0: So so I have an invitation actually. Um, We hope that, first of all, thank you for joining System Check Book Club and being our first guest, but we do hope that you'll join us in the podcast when we do our System Check on immigration. Please. Because we do wanna take up this issue, especially in the beginning of the next year, of the new year.
2: Please, and remember that what we're really talking about is people's humanity, is centering people's humanity. And we've got to reclaim that because there's been a lot of dehumanizing historically and system wide in this country that was just intensified over the last four years. So we got to bring it down, bring it back.
1: Maria Hinojosa, my sister, you are such a gift. Thank
2: mm-hmm. you.
0: Just a reminder that for this week's episode, we're bringing you highlights from our first ever System Check Book Club. Now the book club initially aired as a live event on December 19th. If you wanna be sure to catch our live events in 2021, make sure you follow at System Check Pod on Twitter and System Check on Facebook. Melissa and I have lots of terrific events planned in the coming months that you will not wanna miss. And of course, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Dorian, I am so excited to share this interview with our listeners, because after finishing our next guest's latest book, I was not able to sleep for three days. (laughs) I mean, it is gripping, searing, suspenseful. Mm -hmm. The people in this novel, just check it out, are trapped in a house. They even have trouble getting groceries or adequate information about what is happening. They're cut off from normal human interaction. They drink way too much, and each day ends up feeling like a week. They're grappling with the dystopia of the domestic, revealing deep-seated racism, and coping with death-dealing consequences of environmental and political disaster, which basically sounds like all of 2020 Mm -hmm. (laughs) to (laughs) me. So, Leave the World Behind was a finalist for this year's National Book Award and has already been optioned by Netflix. (laughs) But like I said, it seems like the year 2020 already released the lived experience version of this novel. Please welcome award-winning author Ruman Alam.
3: Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I feel a little outgunned tonight because <laughs> oh. the other guests on this show are such serious intellectuals and I'm just a novelist. No, so, you're not. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, thank you so much for having
1: me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. You're not even going to get away with that. No. Go will mm-hmm. try it, sir. Issues. The entire time i 'm reading it, I was texting him i, was, I can't believe' like I forgot what it was like to read a writer like not not what we do. like we think thoughts and then we try to communicate some of them so they come out in writing, but a writer, what you do with words in this book is absolutely extraordinary thank
3: you that's so kind of you that's so kind of you and I have to take exception with what your colleague Kevin um, asserted about his sense that maybe the book is a sort of, it's in a slippery place in this moment. I, Mm. I, I've read a lot this past, uh, you know, since March when the lockdowns began in New York city and I found it to be such a great comfort. And I, I hope Mm. that, I hope that the other readers out there will feel the same way. And in a moment when our ability to go to the great civic institutions, like our restaurants, the corner stores, all those things are, are, the way we deal with them is different now. The public library has come back, right? Our great local bookstores are doing what they can to operate safely. And mm-hmm. let's face it, like at some point, we're going to run out of Netflix television productions because every, every aspect of business has closed down. And the book is this thing that you can never catch up on. There mm-hmm. will always be centuries of text to dig yes. into. And so I find that a great comfort and I hope other readers have found mm. it.
1: Right. there's uh, No matter how much you've read, there's so much. you've So much to more.
3: So much more. Yeah.
1: Will you do me a favor? Because I, I, I do love you write. <laughs> Will you, will you take us to the grocery store? I mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm.
3: I will indeed. Yeah. So um, there's a scene. This is a book about a family on vacation and there's a scene early in the book where the mother, Amanda goes to the grocery store. I'll just read a little bit from this section. The store was frigid, brightly lit, wide aisled She bought yogurt and blueberries. She bought sliced turkey, whole grain bread, that pebbly mud colored mustard and mayonnaise. She bought potato chips and tortilla chips and jarred salsa full of cilantro, even though Archie refused to eat cilantro. She bought organic hot dogs and inexpensive buns and the same ketchup everyone bought. She bought cold hard lemons and seltzer and Tito's vodka and two bottles of $9 red wine. She bought dried spaghetti and salted butter and a head of garlic. She bought thick-cut bacon and a two-pound bag of flour and a $12 maple syrup in a a faceted glass bottle like a tacky perfume. She bought a pound of ground coffee, so potent she could smell it through the vacuum seal, and size four coffee filters made of recycled paper. If you care, she cared. She bought a three-pack of paper towels and a spray-on sunscreen and aloe because the children had inherited their father's pale skin. She bought those fancy crackers you put out when there were guests and Ritz crackers, which everyone liked best, and crumbly white cheddar cheese and extra garlicky hummus and an unsliced hard salami and those carrots that are tumbled around until they're the size of a child's fingers. She bought packages of cookies from Pepperidge Farm and three pints of Ben & Jerry's politically virtuous ice cream and a Duncan Hines box mix for a yellow cake and a Duncan Hines tub of chocolate frosting with a red plastic lid because parenthood had taught her that on a vacation's inevitable rainy day, you could while away an hour by baking a boxed cake. I'll stop there. And, <laughs> it goes on though, but... I love what
1: it. You to, what you have to understand, readers, listeners, if you haven't read it yet, is every single one of those items shows back up. Mm-hmm. They're not left there on page 11. <laughs> That cake and it getting baked is a whole situation. Gotcha.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, which is what I mean by a writer. Uh, I, also, I also mean this um, by a writer. On page 61 and 62, you give us Ruth and Ruth is a black woman in her sixties. And she says, Ruth had learned one thing from the current reality. And it was that everything was held together by tacit agreement that it would all it took to unravel something was one party deciding to do just that. There was no real structure to present chaos. There was only a collective faith in order. And given that what we do is systems, yeah. I just, I had to stop there and say, oh my god, if that's all there is, is a collective faith in order, is mm-hmm. it like are we like is it is it going to be okay?
3: <laughs> I mean, I think that uh, because this is a book about people trapped in a house, a lot of my readers have asked about, you know, its relationship to coronavirus and to, Mm -hmm. you know, um, quarantine. All of that is pure coincidence.
1: Dude, you have a bat. You an actual (laughs) conversation about bat disease.
0: You're more more prophetic than you're giving yourself credit for because it it seems so familiar.
3: It does. It feels familiar (laughs) because those are the circumstances that we occupy right now. But to Melissa's point, when I was writing the book, it was a book it was intended to be a metaphor that talked about our relationship to the climate Mm -hmm. and our relationship to the politics of the moment. So I wrote this book in 2018 and 2019, right? So this is the politics of the last four years in which we smart people on television talk about norms and decorum and people with actual power discard those. And so what happens then is that, yes, everything was just held together by some sort of faith that it would just hold together, that you would not appoint your son-in-law to be a chief advisor, that you would not (laughs) grant him a security clearance that he hadn't earned. All of these things that you wouldn't earn money as while occupying the office of the presidency, all of these norms have simply fallen away because we just decided to give them up. And that's a really chilling realization.
1: May I ask, because I assume that you know something about your (laughs) characters relative to how you want us to think about them. (laughs) Are we supposed to like Amanda? Um, So Amanda's the one who's grocery shopping initially. And she, because in addition to knowing that there was like a bat disease, which I was way down a rabbit hole reading about because of your book, (laughs) like three in the morning. But you basically drew the perfect Karen, right? Mm. Like, <laughs> I, I...
3: Yeah. Yeah. Amanda, what, what happens is that they confront the black owners of this home, confront the white renters of this home. And then they have to sort of make peace with one another over the course of this unspecified un- unknowable emergency. Amanda's response is a pretty profoundly racist one. And then as Melissa, as you're saying, she's sort of I black. quote
1: Amanda she's, wanted proof. She wanted to inspect yes. the mortgage, a photo ID. She <laughs> yes. wanted a photo ID. Okay, I'm sorry.
3: Right, that they're, because they're black, they don't seem to her like they could possess a well-appointed home, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, she is sort of like the prototypical Karen in that regard. I think like and dislike is sort of like a complicated way to talk about fictional people right so Mm. i hope that you can dislike her but also empathize with the ways in which that sort of whiteness is a different kind of victimhood of the legacy of of the transatlantic slave trade simply like that's actually that's all it is it's the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade and it plays out for our black citizens one way and it plays out for our white citizens another way I'm not interested in comparing which is worse because I think we all know which is worse, but Amanda's trap of being able to only understand Blackness as criminal or other is not great either. Like, that's mm-hmm. a trap. It's a psychic trap.
1: And and one that endangers both her and her family. Absolutely. Uh, again, just to go to systems, there's, um, I'm not going to spoil for those who haven't read because it's not really clear for a very long time sort of what happened and yeah. maybe it- it, maybe it's actually never clear, That's but I will say that that there's a portion around 120, 121 where you you do write what is maybe the clearest um, idea of what about what happened, and it is all about these interlocking systems, right? Mm-hmm. The environment, the electrical grid, public transportation, yeah. international attention, literally levies, right? Air traffic yeah. control, oil pipelines. Again, I part of it is like are we going to be okay given that you kn- that you knew this 2 years ago but I think more than that how do we how do we deploy literature, art, music, all of the things that we tend to think of as like a personal narrative mm-hmm. to help us to reveal those systems.
3: Oh gosh, I, I wish I knew because that's the, been the work of art from its very beginning, right? And so work, there's so much art that predates my my feeble attempt at it that shows us that we must understand the humanity of those people who are incarcerated or those people who are dealing with homelessness or those people who are ill. I think that the fundamental broken system that underlies all of these is education. Mm-hmm. If we had a system of education, that taught our citizens to think critically and read critically and to care about doing that, to, to see the value in engaging with art and what it might teach you, then everything would be different. In some ways I have to believe we don't have that system by design, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I don't think either of you would disagree with that. Yeah. It's simply what we can do, but. Art has a great power. And I think it's important Mm. not to forget that. I think it's really important not to forget that and to cherish the art that actually does change people's minds and does touch people, even if it's just to provide them solace in this moment where we're all stuck at home and feeling isolated Mm. from one another,
0: you know? So, Ruman, we're, we're out of time, but I have to ask you one more question because um, it broke my soul. It broke Melissa's soul. I have a nine-week-old um, baby, and we're going to hear her, I'm sure, at some <laughs> point, because um, she's fussy and sassy and has a lot to say, apparently. <laughs> but, but one of the core things in the text is about loving parents who yeah. do have resources yeah. who are unable to protect their children in the yeah. context of a mass disaster. And so thank you for giving me lots of sleepless nights. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
3: sorry, Tori. I mean, congratulations <laughs> on the baby,
0: though. <laughs> but can you just quickly talk to us about, or how how do we think about a system analysis of children in caring mm-hmm. for kids?
3: We, I think it's one of the powers, oh, it's one of the responsibilities that society has abdicated wholly, especially to care for the children of the people who are propping up what is left of the economy right in this moment, right? They're wholly uncared for. But I think it's so important because it is the fundamental defining human characteristic, right? Mm -hmm. A mother who comes here from Honduras seeking political asylum loves her daughter in exactly the same way that you love your daughter. There's actually no difference. And the better we are able to understand that, the better, you know, that gives me some faith about our ability to do something about it. But the truth is that the power, I think, for change that lies ahead is already in the hands of, the generation that your daughter belongs to, right? Like they will have to take up the, the mantle of dealing with what we've done to the planet because they will be around and we will not.
1: Is Rose okay? Does she turn? Is it okay? So. Well,
3: I mean, Rose, I think it holds in her, my faith in, in your daughter's generation in my son's generation mm-hmm. in what lies ahead. Because I do think there are very smart young people whose names we don't know who care deeply about yes. what is going to happen And I often say that rather than being over 35 to be the president, you should have to be like over 24, you know, because I do think that we need real political power in the hands of younger people
1: everyone last thing and then and dory you can transition this. but i just have to say one last thing thank you for writing a 60 year old black woman so perfectly oh well mm. thank, you, thank <laughs> you for
3: feeling that i did it well was... when
1: ruth was like you saw how dirty they had the kitchen i just got my whole life together and thank you
0: for that <laughs> thank, mm. you. thank you for writing this amazing book and thank you for joining the thank system tech book club our first annual so we hope we'll have you back sometime i'd love soon. to such a great pleasure thank you Thanks for sticking with us for this very special episode of System Check. We are sharing the highlights from our System Check book club, which we initially aired as a live event. Now remember to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media so that you can be part of all of our future live events.
1: Now, during up next is a powerful, brutal, and insightful new book by New York Times bestselling author, Scott Ferris. The book, Freedom on Trial, The first post-Civil War battle over civil rights and voter suppression tells the story of the federal government's prosecution of the South Carolina KKK in the early 1870s, a chapter of history I didn't know much about. So, Scott Ferris, thank you for joining us.
4: Well, thank you, Melissa. It's wonderful to see you and Dorian. Thank you for the invitation to be here.
1: So I want to dig a little bit into some of the nerdy here, right? So, um, so you write about the great South Carolina KKK trials, not the great South Carolina KKK, right? But the trials being about more than just the guilt or innocence of those individual Ku Klux who were charged with the crimes, but rather that it was really about these two big issues was the 14th, is it the fact that the 14th and the 15th Amendment made it so the Bill of Rights were now rights guaranteed to individuals, regardless of where they lived? And secondly, whether or not the federal government was constitutionally bound to protect those rights if the states wouldn't. And again, I think for so many of us living in the 21st century, the idea that those were open questions, and that that's really the beginning of beginning to answer them, was such a powerful framework.
4: Well, thank you. Yeah, It was one of the revelations to me as I was doing the research to learn that before the 14th Amendment was approved, uh, was just generally assumed the bill of rights didn't apply to individuals. They were simply restrictions on the power of the federal government and mm-hmm. the states had every right to infringe on your, uh, your what we would now consider our civil rights. And in fact, in the South, there was no F- first amendment right to free speech. You couldn't c- you know, criticize slavery without going to jail. So yeah, that was, a, it's an enormous uh, surprise to me to learn that even though we've had the bill of rights since Madison and Jefferson, uh, they didn't apply to people until starting in the 1870s.
1: And, I think for me also, when you so there's a couple systems I want to go through. That, mm-hmm. that one of the systems, right, when you talk about the Bill of Rights not applying, is also just that idea of national citizenship. Mm-hmm. I, I can imagine that most folks believe the idea of being an American citizen begins right around 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, but in fact, it's actually almost a hundred years later that we only become national citizens, right, in the context of this 14th Amendment. Um, after a bloody civil war, and as a way of identifying a whole new era of governance. Why does that matter?
4: Well, it matters because, obviously, we want equality before the law. And if every state can treat its citizens differently, there is no national equality. And so it is remarkable that the Constitution doesn't define who is a citizen of the United States. It certainly didn't at the beginning. And so this was a real struggle. And the Civil War obviously changed how we perceive our country, the, the old cliche is, before the war, people said the United States are, and after the war, they said the United States is. And so we went from the plural to the singular. And so it was a really inter- a remarkable mm-hmm. change. And and so uh, as, as the second founding fathers, which the, some of the congressmen and senators, after the Civil War, thought of themselves as, is okay, we've gone through this tremendous struggle. Let's talk about what it had, how it has changed our conception of American being American, what those rights mean. Now we're also bringing in these whole group of people who had previously been enslaved. Now they're going to be citizens. What does that mean? What what are their protections? What are their rights? What can they do? And so it was a second American, it re- was not just a civil war, it was a second American revolution. And so the purpose of these trials to a large degree, as you mentioned, Melissa, was not only to adjudicate the guilt or innocence and provide some measure of justice to these poor folks who'd been brutalized by the Ku Klux Klan. It was also Specifically, they were looking for cases that they could give to the Supreme Court, another system we can talk about, to say, please give us a broad interpretation of what this means now. We want a broad interpretation of what it means to have civil rights and the federal government's obligation to enforce those, uh, and the civil and Supreme Court let us down. So Scott,
0: if I can jump in here, cause we're gonna actually talk to uh, John Nichols soon about another effort <laughs> in the forties that was failed around an economic bill of rights that FDR and particularly his vice president Wallace was, was pushing. But I wanna come to the, the system of public goods because what a lot of people don't understand about reconstruction and the reconstruction era is that that was really the genesis of public goods in the South. There were no public schools to segregate before the 14th Amendment. And people, um, I I often want to remind folks that, hey, for poor white folks in the South too, but for Reconstruction, no public schools that later, of course, (laughs) there were to segregate. So talk to us about um, why, let me just read a passage from uh, the book from page 109. You write that Wright and his cohorts were unapologetically trying to make South Carolina more like New England and the Midwest. The radicals established the first public school system in South Carolina, increased funding for the state hospital and asylum, and devoted funds toward what were called internal improvements, such as roads, canals, and railroads to spur development of commerce. So infrastructure, right? This is the opposite of austerity politics. This This is investment in public goods. So help us understand um, the creation of this system of public goods, but then why why conservatives recede from support of particularly the public education system after Brown in 1954.
4: Sure. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, again, the South was just really almost a completely separate country uh, in, in terms of its approach to all sorts of things. And as you mentioned, public services being one of them, if the only education provided before the war was that when, planters would hire private tutors. And if they were gracious, they might invite the neighbor kids to come in. And of course, for African-American children, there was no education at all. And so after the war, through the radical reconstruction governments, it's funny we call them radical because they advocated equality (laughs) and what we think is basic rights, but we're Mm -hmm. the radical Republicans in those days. Um, And so they said, yes, obviously the South needs could benefit from public education and and a whole host of things. The Freedmen's Bureau was really the first welfare program in the history of the United States And actually in many places the Freedmen's Bureau served poor whites more than they served poor blacks at the time. And so it was something that everyone got used to. And one of the interesting things when you look at, for example, in the congressional testimony, uh, where where these these, uh, former Confederates are coming and complaining about the radicals, they always get back to the issue of taxes, how upset they are Mm. that they're now paying taxes to support public schools and some of these other things that we would just take for granted as a basic public service. But it it caused a great reaction in the South. They'd never paid such taxes. Why should they pay them now? What's the point of public education?
1: Now, for all of the work that this is about voting and about as you write mm-hmm. testifying in court and serving on juries, I do not want to miss one more really important system issue about what you write, which is you said that <laughs> all of this was necessary to ensure that African Americans could exercise their full rights of citizenship, but the most important of all the bill of rights as far as freedmen and women were concerned mm-hmm. was the second amendment yeah. right to own firearms and given the brutality and the horror that you write about in this book. So I just wanna kind of tell folks it's, yes, it's history and, and law, but it's also very embodied. Mm. Talk to us about what that second amendment meant in the 1870s for uh, newly freed black men and women.
4: That was another sort of internal revelation for me, and I'm I'm assuming like you too. I've I've long advocated for for gun control, and and we just have way too many guns in this society. Uh, but then you forget, you know, sometimes you do need uh, personal defense. And and so in the 1870s, uh, 1868, as the Ku Klux Klan sort of evolved from this sort of benign social club to this paramilitary force, almost a second mm-hmm. insurrection against the government. Um, you know, in order for a- black people to exercise their rights, they first needed to be safe. And so they armed themselves uh, as anybody would, plus they were hunted, you know, obviously that's a food source too. Uh, and one of the first things when the Ku Klux Klan would do their raids, they had two basic objectives. One was obviously to ensure that black people didn't vote, or if they did vote, they voted the way they were told to vote. And the other was to take their guns away. Because then that would make them more vulnerable to additional voter suppression and additional pressures. So it was a remarkable thing. And in fact, the prosecutors in, in, in the in the trials who, who were led by Amos T. Ackerman, a former Confederate who actually became one of the strongest advocates for black civil rights in the history of the Attorney General of the United States, said, find some cases that we can sort of help protect the newly freed with under the Second Amendment. That if the Ku Klux Klan are taking their guns, they're violating the Second Amendment to the Constitution, and then and then black people will have some some uh, ways for redress and so i never thought about the second amendment that way it's sort of a mm-hmm. crucial right to protect your individual freedoms that's something we associate with right-wingers and mm-hmm. and militiamen of the current period but it was absolutely vital to, to black americans and so uh, what took their place was states uh, sponsored militias uh, that uh, african americans joined en masse to protect the community and protect their rights and as i said protect everybody's rights these weren't just not just rights uh, that were going to be had received by African-Americans and for all Americans. And I'm sorry, I, you didn't mention it yet, but part of the book yeah. is my own great-grandfather's role next? In, so, in the so complex so clan. So and he, he wasn't smart enough to understand those were his rights too. And instead he was working against his own interests.
0: So Scott, I want to come to this. This is our, our last question. And, and I just have to say, I, I'm a reconstruction nerd, but what what is really important about your book that runs the theme is that to understand the clan, it's not in that domestic terrorism against black people. It's not just because of individual bias or racism. It was always connected to political power and the vote. Oh. And you, that it is such an important theme that, that you keep hitting at throughout the book. But this book is also really personal as you just said, yeah. because your great grandfather was in the South Carolina clan, your great grandfather committed acts of violence against black people. And so what did it mean to you to have to grapple with as a historian, but also as someone descended, right, from this person? How did you grapple with this personal and national history at the same time?
4: Well, one of of my hopes for the book is it will inspire others to look more realistically at their family history. I mean, when we find somebody who came off the Mayflower, or signed the declaration of pen, we we can't wait to put their portrait over the mantelpiece. I'm descended from this wonderful uh, stock of, of Americanism. Mm-hmm. But what about those of us who are also descended from people who did horrible things and mm-hmm. part of that part of American history too? And so it was. It was sobering. It, again, you realize this person. I have one one eighth of my DNA basically comes from this person. Uh, and and I say I don't believe in inherited guilt, but I do believe that we are bequeathed certain obligations by our ancestors. And I think one of the obligations is to tell the truth about the past and try to make amends for the, the crimes they committed. And so, as I point in the book, uh, I'm not. It would be very incongruous of me to write a book to atone for my family history and then to try to make money off that. So whatever royalties I receive, I would like to you know people who mm-hmm. know I'm going to donate. Uh, to so- social justice organizations. Uh, Melissa's been offering a couple of ideas on that. And so it, it, it is something where you just you just want to realize that in, in time and place, we're all capable of doing terrible things. And so we have this ongoing obligation. No system is just finished. It always requires constant maintenance and attention if it's going to work properly and, and with justice for all. So I think what it done for me, it, it, it reminded me that I have an attachment to this issue, and I therefore have an obligation to keep working on it and and continue to make the system more perfect because it's always going to be a work it's every generation is going to face the same challenges and it requires constant attention.
1: Scott Ferris, thank you for continuing to illuminate mm-hmm. American history in so many crucial ways. Thank you for writing that you're going to ensure your great-grandfather's soul is at rest in part <laughs> by ensuring that the resources from this text are going to organizations that support racial justice and voter participation and a more honest interpretation of the Reconstruction era. And thank you for joining the System Check Book
4: Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a great pleasure, great honor. I'm so glad it's going so well and best, best of both of you. Happy holidays. We continue
0: our System Check Book Club with a conversation with our colleague at The Nation. John Nichols is national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine. He's also a contributing writer for The Progressive and In These Times, and associate editor of The Capital Times, the daily newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin. In his latest book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, John reveals the legacy of former Vice President Henry Wallace, who warned of the persisting danger of American fascism, and urge the Democratic Party to reject imperialism in favor of a genuinely progressive future. It's a message Nichols says the Democratic Party needs to heed right now. Welcome to the System Check Book Club, John. I love what you're doing. Thank you, John. So I'm gonna jump in here. Um, New dealer, agriculture secretary, commerce secretary, third party presidential candidate in 1948 in the progressive party platform, founder of what later became the Wallace Global Fund. But Henry Wallace was the second vice president to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And FDR is such a huge, towering figure, right? Historically, we rarely think of vice presidents as critical. So what have we missed, John, by ignoring Wallace?
5: Just about everything, (laughs) (laughs) as is often the case. Um, Henry Wallace was all that you say. Uh, It's important to understand, he came into the White House With Franklin Roosevelt in March of uh, 1933, and he was there to the day that Roosevelt died, Uh, he was the true keeper of the New Deal promise. And it wasn't that he thought the New Deal was perfect. It's important, as people who deal with history, to understand the New Deal was fundamentally flawed in many, many ways. It was too cautious in many ways. And yet, this notion that the biggest problems that America faced could be dealt with that government itself could do good, that we could do dramatic things. That underpinned the New Deal. And Henry Wallace took that in, preached that gospel, and fought for it when others, including many people that we think of today as great Democrats, let it down. And at the heart of the thing, at the very heart of the thing, he said during World War II, as our World War II Vice President, he said that yes, we needed to fight fascism in Europe, but then we needed to come home and fight fascism in America, and mm-hmm. he identified American fascism as racism.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, I want to go to the vision and then ask you a, a question about why this 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 was a key decision point that affected the rest of the century of our politics. But I want you to first talk to us about um, Wallace's vision because in 1942 he gives a speech about how the 20th century should be the century of the common man. Um, He was also an advocate for FDR's second Bill of Rights, the Economic Bill of Rights. And what was the vision? And I know there was a strong anti-racist vision as well. Take a a few seconds to tell us what was his actual vision?
5: Well, Henry Wallace had an evolving vision. He was a liberal Republican as a young man, Um, and uh, he he was really a, a farm advocate. He was from rural America, Mm -hmm. But when he came into the Roosevelt administration, he realized the possibilities of government. And so his vision was to create a government that strove for economic and social and racial justice, for preservation of the planet and for peace. Now, he was not a pacifist. He understood the necessity of World War II. But he believed that if you addressed fundamental challenges of inequality at home and abroad, that you could aw- avoid the wars of the future. And this is a really a heart and soul thing because I think Democrats still mm. forget this. I think a lot of political people forget this. They think, well, we can focus on the domestic challenges and that'll be okay. We'll, we'll do that. But what they lose sight of is what we saw with Lyndon Johnson, a president who was doing a lot of good domestically. Right. And then got all wrapped up in, in Vietnam. And Dr. King had to tell him how bad it was and he didn't listen. And so we ended up, losing the promise of the great society. What Wallace taught was that if you focused on anti-racism at home, anti-sexism, if you thought to reduce the economic inequality, and also if you went abroad with that same focus, you could actually build a US policy and frankly a global policy that, that dialed down the prospect of wars and dialed up the prospect of justice.
1: So, John, Jordan, when I heard you, when we were talking with Scott Ferris, and you sort of combined, and you're like, we're about to talk to John Nichols. I was like, yeah, I was thinking same thing, right? Um, in certain ways, is counterfactual, right? The the path that we didn't take, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, for Scott, in 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 his, in one of the books, it's it's about the the people who don't win, right? Um, the presidency, but in this case, it's like, what if we listen to the vice president? Like, what would it look like? <laughs> who, who who might we have been? And yes, I did sort of maybe do like a thing there about Kamala, but you know, what if? Oh, yeah. the, right? What if the vice presidency was something that? was not just waiting for the top you know for the principal to die. So what did we not do? What's the counterfactual? Mm-hmm. What might our present look like oh. if we had taken Wallace's path?
5: Well let me let me sum it up by a speech that Wallace gave after he was vice president. In 1947 he went to speak to a group of fraternities, black fraternities out in Oklahoma City. Mm. And um, and he said, "Look, let's be let's be frank with ourselves. Let's be frank about the reality of what happens in this country." a black child born today in the same city as a white child, black male child born in the same city as a black ma- white male child, will live, according to science, according to the numbers we know, 10 years less. He says, we must fight for those 10 years. And Wallace understood this. Now, what didn't make him perfect, it's, I'm not trying to make him into the, the perfect hero, but what I'm telling you is To have a president who understood that fundamental reality in the
1: 1947. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Coming out of World War II, if he had, Mm. they kicked him off the ticket in 1944 because of his focus, frankly, on, on race, on class, on gender. He was knocked off that ticket. Now, if he had stayed on that ticket, he would have become president of the United States. And in 1945, you would have had a president of the United States who said, no, we've got to deal with these issues now. Not Mm. 20 years from now. So just think of how much. Now, it would have been hard. Nobody tells you it would have been easy, but think of how much could have been addressed. Then think about having a president who was 100 percent committed to the Equal Rights Amendment, Mm -hmm. who appeared with women's groups and fought for that. And think about having a president who coming out of World War II, said, look, is there a possibility that we can avoid a Cold War? Is there a possibility that we can come home to America and focus on meeting human needs here, implementing an economic bill of rights. And one final thing, had he been president and been able to implement that economic bill of rights or some elements of it in 45 and 46, the Democrats might have held the Congress and you might not have gotten the Taft-Hartley Act and yeah. other laws that began yes. to dismantle, not just the New Deal, but frankly began to dismantle our people power. So would a lot be different? I have, That's why I wrote the book. So,
0: Donna, the reason why I love this book, so I'm just going to hold up uh, uh, this book I'm going to read over the holidays. You see how thick it is? <laughs> good. Our good friend Rick Pearlstein, who's a nation contributor on Reagan land and, and America's Right Turn. And I, I raise it as an example. That, you know, there's just a literature of a whole bunch of books now on how trying to explain our current crisis. Like, how do we get to Trump and Trumpism? Mm-hmm. So some people start in the 80s, some people start in the 70s. I love that you take us to the 40s. And to this decisive moment, but I want you to—I want to bring it forward now. Okay, so who—who's inherited the legacy of Wallace for the Democratic Party? Is uh-huh. it Sanders? Is it Warren? Is it the the squad and the growing squad? Because at the end of the book, you start—you name some of those folks. So who are oh, they? who? You know, not to give it away, but
5: I'll give it away. And, I'm, I'm and, delighted. And and I happen Melissa, to think,
0: it's, I happen to think wants, it's a good tale. So Melissa wants to right? know if the Democratic Party has a soul to fight for. That's anybody. my question.
5: <laughs> Let's, well, let's divide the two up. And uh let's do first who who I think is fighting for it and then then maybe we get to that final element. Um and and so at the close of the book, I, the book is a history. It first half is about Wallace, the second half is about how to this battle for the soul because Wallace battled for the soul of the party and frankly lost. And a lot of other people along the way lost. That's important to understand, but they didn't all lose. There were people who battled their way in and I write about Shirley Chisholm and George McGovern and Jesse Jackson and, you know, so many other people that battled. But at the close of the book, the last chapter, I did with two people. I went to Henry Wallace's birthplace with Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. who walked the same fields and talked about that economic Bill of Rights. But the book closes with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We were in Detroit, just a few blocks away from where Wallace gave what I think was his greatest speech, the speech in 1943 that led to an integrated audience in Detroit after a race riot that left where police killed 17 African-American men. Wallace said, if you accept this, if you accept this racism, then you are no different from the Nazis we're fighting against, right? And that was this, this incredible Ameri- his speech on American fascism. So we we're just a few blocks away from there. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and I talked about the New Deal and about Roosevelt. And understanding all the nuances, all the complexities, she talked about this big vision, the bold vision, the trying to solve mm-hmm. real problems now, and said, I want to be that party again. Mm-hmm. And so in answer to Melissa's question, mm-hmm. um, is there a soul to fight for? In 30 seconds Those or who, less, too. <laughs> you know, easy. Those who choose to fight for it must fight for it in that spirit. They must mm. understand they are not merely fighting a, a tactical or structural battle of the moment. They are fighting an 80-year-long battle for economic and social and racial justice and for dealing immediately with the challenges that have been too long deferred. Well said. Well
1: said, John Nichols. And hmm, maybe you can convince me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not telling you.
5: What I'm, you know what I'm yeah, I got it. What is, John Nichols, Somebody wants to fight, fight hard.
1: National Affairs Correspondent for the Nation, and an always perpetual hard-fighting writer, activist, and thinker. Thank you for joining Mr. Check Book Club today. Thank you.
0: Our final selection offers a very different way of thinking about systems. Now although this book is about one man, quote, it is not a biography. It builds on and extends history by considering him as collective rather than singular and contends with who he became rather than who he was, end quote. That's athlete, artist, philosopher, and activist Paul Robeson, arguably the most talented man of the 20th century, and he's the subject of a new book by Shauna Redman, professor of musicology and African-American studies at UCLA. Her 2020 book from Duke University Press is titled Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson. Professor Redmond, thank you for joining the System Check Book Club.
6: Thank you so much for having me, and it's really nice not only to see you, Dorian, again for the second time, and to <laughs> see <Second>. you officially <laughs> Melissa, um, but also to have followed the discussion of Henry Wallace, because mm-hmm. Roosevelt stumped for Wallace in '48, and was to Wallace, I guess, as Killa Mike was to Bernie Sanders. Yeah.
0: What? Well, yeah. go, go there, go there, because tell us a little bit about who Paul Robeson was and for those who don't know, and, and why would he be stomping for Henry Wallace?
6: <laughs> so Paul Robeson, the, uh, the title of the book Everything Man is um, only minimally tongue in cheek. He really was everything and mm. to everyone. Right. So I'm pulling out all of these quotes throughout the book, which is arguing, as his wife does to open the book, that everything and everyone wanted him everywhere. Right, that he was being called by these masses of people who were struggling against colonialism, who were fighting for workers' rights, who were fighting for a socialist inspired democracy. And he starts to stump for Wallace in 48 before he becomes a villain of the state even as that um, kind of profile is escalating as the surveillance of him is escalating due to his work as an anti-colonial insurgent abroad and domestically the ways in which he's using his stage work his craft work um, in films in theater in music to actually rail against the state through uses of the negro spirituals through taking on and um, kind of displaying for the world the iconic lives of people like John Henry, um, all of these things are bringing attention from the surveillance state, both in the UK and in the United States, but by 1948, he's very solidly situated within a civil rights left in the United States, a labor left in mm-hmm. the United States and globally, and decides that the progressive party, a third party option is the best opportunity for reaching the goals that he saw as necessary for our liberated futures.
1: So, Shanna, you do something extraordinary in this book. And I I want to really emphasize for folks, this is not a biography of Mm -hmm. Robeson, right? Certainly, if you don't know who Robeson is, you will come to know more from having read it. But what I love about it for inclusion in this book club is that you read Robeson as a system, right? So instead of as simply the individual, as the system. So for those who haven't read it, or even for those of us who have, but were challenged by the complexity of the language and the argument. Can you walk us through this idea of Robeson as both element and vibration? Mm -hmm. Mm
6: -hmm. so i start the book or or the purpose of the book is really to talk about um the ways in which he's called back the ways in which he becomes usable for people that he does become a system a technology of sorts that allows people Mm -hmm. to think and do and act as they otherwise may not for him not being present and so i discuss a number of, of situations during his lifetime, but much of the book happens beyond his physical animation. It happens post 1976, which is the year in which he passes away. And I'm trying to think about all of the ways that he returns to us through recorded musics, through the built environment, and the mm. book tracks him in, as um, ascending in scale. So I start with the preface, which is around the element, kind of the raw materials of his person that make for such a fantastic, spectacular specimen. And then I move on to vibration. And I think what was really important for me was to really ground very solidly his musical practice because quite often he's kind of lionized in the left due to his political speeches and having shown up for people. But my argument is that we don't know his politics without knowing his instrument Mm. we actually don't know his politics without listening to the music because that's the reason he was there in the first place they Mm. called him to perform and the speech and the thought and the theorizations that came from it were secondary to the types of political work that he saw himself doing as a musician as kind of a physical instrument a singer but also an instrument of the people and so i track that um, often through his musical performances but also through his development into sculpture, his development into art installation but then also his ascendance to the shape of a mountain. So there is a mountain peak in Kyrgyzstan that's named Mount Paul Robeson and I kind of end the project by thinking about him kind of ascending to summit and what does it mean for him to still be a permanent artifact within our contemporary geopolitical landscapes Um, but he is Someone who I will also
1: note that you give an absolutely crushing and devastating analysis to the stamp Paul Robeson as <laughs> as the grinning American stamp mm-hmm. versus mm. uh, the intense and serious artist. I mean, I I'm about to just do all the things with that in class. I. <sighs> well
6: this is the thing he did not want to he wasn't a symbol that is that is not what he wanted for his life he Mm -hmm. wanted to actually be materially useful to people right and i have this amazing quote from ozzy davis in the book who wrote about him Mm -hmm. shortly after he passed away and he says that the question of paul robeson for black people is not a matter of fancy and i'm paraphrasing Mm -hmm. here it's a matter of life and death Mm -hmm. right knowing this person is a matter of life and death after every Thing he gave, and he says that you know he gave and gave and gave, and we took and took and took, right? And this is what he wanted for his life. He saw himself as, uh, in some respects, an offering to people. And so the stamp, where he's smiling and pacified, um, but his name is emblazoned in red, right? Always red, um, mm-hmm. was a moment mm-hmm. of of um, attempting to really struggle with how he's been pacified in by the State Department that so readily so willingly vilified him throughout his life.
0: Can you actually explain that? for you said his name is always emblazoned in red. Why don't you spell that out for us?
6: So Paul Robeson, right, um, was someone who lost his passport in 1950. Mm -hmm. It was revoked by the State Department um, because of the kind of pervasiveness of the McCarthy government, right? Um, He was argued to be a communist and famously was brought before the HUAC committee more than once and would plead the fifth in response to the question of are you now or have you ever been a member of the communist party and that was his stand against both the inquisition but also the fact of of standing firmly in his belief that his political affiliation was none of the government's business. Um, and so the fact that he was always labeled a red, that his concerts were constantly disrupted, 1949 in peak Skill, where violence breaks out due to the Ku Klux Klan and other nation- white nationalist organizations due to the kind of pervasive, uh, uh, pervasive whisper of his communist affiliation throughout the United States was something that always attends to his memory is that he was a red he was a red diaper baby and um whether he was or not of course he was wink wink um is it was for him not not the business of anyone but those with whom he chose to share it <sighs>
1: Shauna Redmond, first of all, thank you for writing the book that I am giving to my father-in-law um, mm. for the holidays this year, um, largely because of, I mean, for every reason, but also because you describe Robson's ear as pentatonic and say that he has an F-sharp epistemology. And genuinely, it was my father-in-law who even taught me those words about the black keys on the piano. So I'm so grateful for this book. Um, it is an extraordinary
6: offering. And thank you for joining us on the system check Mm -hmm. so happy to be here and many congratulations on the new podcast
0: thank you you. and we'll see you hopefully in person in 2021
6: i would love that please (laughs)
0: Well, Melissa, that's it for our very first
1: System Check Book Club. Oh, Dorian, I really love talking with these authors. Mm. And as we go into the new year, I hope we have a chance to host many more book club conversations. And, you know, maybe we can do them more than once a year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a few times, maybe quarterly, maybe monthly. Who knows? (laughs) The sky is the limit in 2021. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Listen, um, the most important thing I can say is that this had been a hard year, 2020, mm. and I'm so happy that we made it to 2021 and, and that hosting System Check is the one thing from last year that I'm excited <laughs> to be bringing into this
0: year. We are not canceling System Check. We are <laughs> going to keep it going. And I totally agree with you, Melissa. Happy New Year. Happy 2021. I'm glad we made it. and. Hey, what's up next for 2021 for us?
1: Well, we have so many important episodes coming up. And in, of course, the first couple of weeks of the new year, we'll be talking a lot about this transition that we're having in both the US Senate. We'll be talking about the first 100 days of the Biden administration. We've got lots to talk about in terms of housing, immigration, the, the conversations and the systems will in fact continue, which is why for all of you all who are listening, this is a great time to go ahead and subscribe. Make sure that you go wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to System Check, follow us on social media, and get ready for a great 2021.
0: That's right. Happy New Year, Melissa. And I'll hear and see you next week.
1: <laughs> see you then. <laughs> System Check is a project of The Nation, hosted by me, Melissa Harris-Perry, and Dorian Warren, and produced by Sophia Steinard Evoy. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Dee, Dee Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Erin O'Meara is president of The Nation.
0: And our theme music is by Brooklyn-based artist and producer, Jackery. Support for System Check comes from Omidyar Network, a social change venture that is reimagining how capitalism should work. Learn more about their efforts to recenter our economy around individuals, community, and societal well-being at omidyar.com.
1: Now, the best way to show your love for this show is to subscribe online to the nation's print and digital magazine at thenation.com podcastsubscribe Join the fight for the once unthinkable progressive ideas that are now mainstream. 80% off for our podcast listeners at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. And as always, if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.